What I'm reading this morning comes from the prophet of Habakkuk. Now some of you may have noticed that I come to you with a strange accent, so you may hear strange ways that I pronounce certain words that maybe you're used to pronouncing in different ways. You're going to have to bear with me. I'm too old, really, to be able to change the way that I pronounce words. This is how I've grown up over many years. And so we're going to turn to the prophet Habakkuk. We're going to read from verse 1 of chapter 1 through to verse 5 of chapter 2. And again, let me remind you, this is God's most holy word. Receive it as such. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not say. Why do you show me iniquity, and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Lord reply. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their charges charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come from violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up mounds of earth and seize it. And his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, imputing his power to his God. And Habakkuk again responds. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours one more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous. And their food plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? I will stand my watch, set myself on the rampart, and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it surely will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith. 
Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home. Because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death, and cannot be satisfied, he gathers to himself all nations, and heaps up for himself all peoples. And we'll end the reading there at verse 5. May the Lord truly bless his words to us. Let's take a moment to pray before we consider these verses. Father, once more we come before you because we seek your help. Your help to understand your word. Your help to apply your word. Your help to appreciate your word. And so we pray, O Lord our God, that you truly will teach us your truths. We pray that you will give us attentive minds and hearts. We pray that you would give us eyes that see, not just physical eyes, but those spiritual eyes we need. And again, ears to hear, and again, more than just the ability to hear, but the ability to understand truth that comes from you. Lord Trudy, we pray that your Holy Spirit will illumine us and aid us, not just to hear, but to put it into practice. Oh, Lord God, speak to us, we pray. And may we truly hear your voice. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In late 1649, Oliver Cromwell arrived in Ireland to retake the country which had been under the control of the Irish Catholic Confederation, supported by the English royalists. Um, I think it's fair to argue often forgotten, that Cromwell's main fight was actually with the English royalists, who had been defeated in the Civil War that culminated in January of that same year, earlier on in that year, with the uh, execution of King Charles I. And so for a period of time, England, Britain, were, was without royalty. And... Um, Cromwell, firstly, when he arrived in Ireland, besieged the port garrison of Drogheda and offered them terms of surrender, which the commander, an Englishman, um, a royalist, and Sir Andrew Ashton refused. And so the town then suffered a severe defeat and massacre, which has led to great controversy, particularly in modern times. As through our modern eyes, we look back and we read what happened and we are just shocked by the scale of the massacre that took place. Now my point to bring that up is not to really delve into the rights and wrongs or to debate the rights and the wrongs of Cromwell or the Royals or whatever, but rather to illustrate what it must have been like to have been an ordinary person in Drogheda at that time. Their very lives were under threat from an outside force. If you do not surrender, the message came to the town, you will die. If you do not surrender, you will die. What a terrible situation it was for the ordinary people of the town. At least if you were a soldier, you could die in a sense a hero with dignity defending the garrison town. But if you're a woman or a child especially, you face, particularly as the commander refused the offer to escape, you faced slaughter. Around 609 to 605 year, uh, BC, 600 or so years before Christ was born, 
Judah and Jerusalem faced a similar terror. About 100 years previously, they'd survived a, a terrible siege from the Assyrian army. And God had miraculously saved the people of Judah. The, their cousins, if you will, the, the northern, northern territory of Israel had fallen to the Assyrians, but Judah survived. But now, 100 or so years later, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, were the dominant force and were overrunning all of the nations. And Judah would be no exception. It was just a matter of time before the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, came sweeping through Judah and took all that they saw. But what was incredible was, what was happening, particularly within in Jerusalem, life was going on as if nothing outside was happening. And Habakkuk the prophet was getting so frustrated. He was a godly man seeking to follow the commands of the Lord. But all he could see around him were people ignoring the commands of God. Injustice was all around. We're talking about within Jerusalem, not in the Babylonians, but within Jerusalem, within God's people. The poor are being mistreated and nobody seemed to care about God. Habakkuk was frustrated. And what's more, not only was he frustrated with the situation, he was also frustrated with God because God didn't seem to be listening to his cries. And that's really the situation we face as we arrive at the prophecy of, or the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk had been crying out for a long time for God to act, not so much with what's going outside, but within Jerusalem, within Judah that God would bring about a change, that God would bring about a revival almost in the people, as it happened under the time of King Josiah, who had just recently died. But soon after good King Josiah died, the people had soon gone back to their old ways. How long? Habakkuk cries out to the Lord God. How long? Will you allow a violence and injustice to go on in your city, O Lord? How long will you stand idly by and watch the law being laughed at, injustice prevailing, and the poor being mistreated? How long, O Lord, will you just sit back? Can you not see? Can you not hear, O God? How long, O Lord, will you let the wicked within the community of God suppress the righteous. How long will you do nothing? And this is a a true plea from the heart from Haggai. We have to recognize this. He is frustrated. He's frustrated with the people and he's frustrated with God. How long will it go on? Why didn't you change things, Lord? Do something. But as God replies to Habakkuk in a gracious way, as God always does, the reply isn't quite what Habakkuk expected. First of all, what he had to understand, and we all have to understand, is that God sees everything. God knows. God never stands idly by. He's at work. And his purposes will be brought about. The first lesson that Habakkuk had to learn is that God is not ignorant of what's going on inside or outside the church, inside or outside the community of God. God knows. God sees. We can't escape God's sight. 
God sees what goes on. God is not slow. The Apostle Peter later writes this. He says, look, I know some of you think God is not acting quickly enough. But it's not true, Peter says. He says, God is not slow as you're thinking about it. Just sitting idly by. Rather, God is merciful. God is giving an opportunity for people to bend the knee, to bow the knee, and to turn to him. That's what Peter said. And that's in effect what God said to Abacog as well. Judah had been under threat for many years. Even though the Assyrians had uh, not taken over, they weren't really free. They were still struggling. They were weak and swollen, still had to pay tribute to Egypt at various times, and Assyria, sometimes they allied with Assyria, other times with Egypt. They were never quite free. They were struggling ever since the Assyrians had been on the scene. And although they had been saved from the Assyrians, It wasn't because they were more righteous than their northern neighbors, Israel. Although Israel had been plagued by evil kings such as Ahab, Judah itself had had their fair share of evil rulers, such as Manasseh, the son of good king Hezekiah. Now we recognize that although Manasseh at the end did repent, nevertheless the evil that he did within Jerusalem God said, and actually God had said to Josiah, meant that judgment would fall on Judah. So we see that even though there was repentance from Manasseh, the consequences of his sin, the consequences of the devastation, would actually ultimately end in judgment on Judah. Secondly, what Habakkuk had to realize was God actually was going to bring judgment but not in the way that Habakkuk assumed that God would bring judgment. It seems that Habakkuk was actually seeking a revival. As I said, like it happened during the days of King Josiah, who had recently died. And we can understand that. Surely that's what we want when we see the people of God struggling, when we see that there's sin within the camp. What we want to see is repentance. We want to see a turning back to God, a revival of the life of God's people. And so so often, that's what we pray. And I think, in a sense, that's what Habakkuk was looking for as well. He was looking for a revival within a nation. He wanted the wicked rulers to be uh, taken away so they could be replaced by a good king, a faithful king, to lead the people properly. But that's not what God was going to do. He was going to bring a different type of judgment. He was actually going to bring a worse judgment by bringing the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, into the land to sweep all before them and utterly overrun Judah. Look outside Jerusalem, God tells Habakkuk in verse 5, and see and be astonished and astounded. The Chaldeans are actually going to be my instrument, God tells him, of judgment upon my people. They are fearsome, he tells Habakkuk. They are powerful. They gather captives like sand and they laugh at kings and rulers and they will sweep away my people. Habakkuk was astounded. Habakkuk was amazed, but he wasn't pleased. And he said, no, no, you can't do that, Lord. The apostle Peter, uh, while the Lord Jesus was alive, 
responded to the Lord's statement that he, that the Lord Jesus was, it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, to be handed over to the wicked people in order to die, the Apostle Peter responded by saying, not so, Lord, there's no way that's going to happen. There's no way. You cannot do that, Lord. No, Lord. If there's ever two words that must never go side by side, it's those. No and Lord. If if the Lord Jesus, as he is, is our Lord, then we, what we need to say is, yes, Lord. Where you send, we will go. What you say, we will do. But all too often, like Peter, like Habakkuk, we see and we read and we hear what God wants and we say, oh no, Lord, you can't mean that. And that's exactly what happened to Habakkuk. He truly was astounded, but he was not pleased. He said, no, Lord, you can't do that. Have you seen the Babylonians? Do you know what they're like? He says, you're holy. You're pure. Absolutely true. How can you, how can you look upon? How can you use these evil people to bring about your judgments? How can you turn a blind eye, in a sense, Habakkuk said, to the wickedness of the Babylonians? Because it's far worse than the wickedness of those in Jerusalem. See, that's really what the issue was. Oh, I know we're bad, but we're not as bad as them. I know we're bad, and I know something needs to change here, but we're not as bad as them. You see, we misunderstand. We always, you know, we always think we're better than we, we are. Oh, we're bad. Yeah, we're going to admit, yes, we sin, but really it's not. I mean, look around us. Look at the sin out there. We don't understand that every sin, every sin deserves punishment. Every sin deserves hell. And every sinner deserves to suffer for the sin they do. We cannot say, well, I know I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as them. We have to recognize the seriousness of our sin. And Habakkuk said, you can't use them. I'd much rather live with the, the sin in Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the Babylonians. Habakkuk said, I just don't know what's going on. To be fair to Habakkuk, he said that he's going to wait for the answer to come from God. He said, look, this is, I just don't understand it. Lord, I don't understand how it is that you could do such a thing. I'm going to go to my tower, he said, I'm going to sit, and I'm going to wait for the Lord to respond. God, show me. Speak to me. Reveal to me. So many people ask, if God is a God of love, how can he allow such suffering to befall the innocent? And it's not just the unbeliever who asks that. Asaph, the psalmist, especially in Psalm 73, wondered why it was that the wicked prospered and the righteous suffered. He said, look, my foot almost slipped. As I pondered these things, as I thought about these things, as I looked all around it, is it in vain that I've kept my feet pure? Is it in vain that I've worshipped God? Because what benefit is there if I do that when the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Now, to be fair to Asaph again, he said he found his answer when he went into the sanctuary, when he came to worship God. And there he got that revelation from God in the presence of God to understand the end of the wicked. And he also understood that God held him by his right hand. That God held Asaph in the midst of all of the struggles. And that's in effect what Habakkuk has to realize, has to come to understand. 
And Habakkuk um, doesn't seem to think that the punishment of Judah fits their crime. After all, they're not as bad as the Babylonians. So how could you use the wicked, the more wicked? Now, of course, the so-called friends of Job had a wonderful answer to why it was that Job was suffering. He said, they said to him, Job, well, look, it's obvious. You're not innocent. God's repaying you because you've done something wrong. But Job said, no, I'm innocent. The reality is obviously that both Job and his friends were both wrong, which is true. This is what normally happens. One person says one thing, says, no, 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 the other thing, the reality is it's more than likely we're both wrong when it comes to us trying to judge how God operates. Job wasn't perfectly innocent, but neither was he guilty of what he was being accused of. Habakkuk likewise was wrong. He was looking at it all wrong. You see, we always look at what happens to us, or to be fair, we often look at what happens to others from our perspective, from an earthly perspective, and we say, look, it doesn't seem fair when we think about things on earth. And from Habakkuk's perspective, he was absolutely right. Look, Jerusalem and Judah were bad, but at least there was a semblance of worship of God. Whereas the Babylonians were pagans, did whatever they wanted, they heaped up evil upon evil. But God told Job, look at me, look at me. Were you there when I created the world? Were you there when I made the mountains? Were you there when I created the wonderful sea creatures? Were you there when I made the stars in the sky? Were you there, Job? Don't think about things just from this perspective. Look at me. Look upwards. Paul says the same thing in Romans 9. Who are we to talk back to God when we say it's not fair? Who are we? All too often we say to God, you must act and you must do it my way, the way I think. That's what Habakkuk was saying. Look, I want you to act, but just act within uh, parameters that I can accept. God told Habakkuk that he knew all about the Babylonians. He knew who they were. He knew what they were doing. He knew what they were like. And the reality is is that in their evil and with their evil attempt, they're rushing headlong towards certain death. They too will face judgment for what they do. But he says to Habakkuk, you, Habakkuk, look at me. Do you trust me? He says to Habakkuk, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. The just shall live. By faith. Now we know that this has uh, echoes of Abraham, what happened to Abraham. We're told in Genesis 15, 6 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Likewise, the Apostle Paul uh, cites this very verse from Habakkuk in Romans when speaking about the righteousness of God which is revealed as being apart from the law that is not based on our works. For sure. The context of what God says to Habakkuk is that his faith will persevere, will continue even in the midst of trial and tribulation. That like Abraham before him, Habakkuk must wait patiently for the Lord to fulfill his purposes. It's what we learn in Hebrews. God made promises to Abraham, but he never received them actually fully and finally. Why? Because Abraham, like the other Old Testament saints of faith, were looking up. To God. All Abraham had when he died in the promised land 
was his burial plot. That's all, all the promises of land had come to was a burial plot. But Abraham trusted God because he understood what? That the promise went beyond the earth to eternity. He was looking forward to a city not made with hands, to heaven itself. You see, Abraham didn't receive, in a sense, all of the earthly promises. That was still yet to be fulfilled. Because he was looking up. And he trusted God. And that's what um, God was saying to Habakkuk. Likewise, like Abraham of all, you have to trust me. You have to truly trust me. The righteous, he says, will live by faith. The final words of Habakkuk in chapter 3, we didn't read, are some of the most beautiful concerning trusting and rejoicing in the Lord, whatever the circumstances. And it's highly likely that Habakkuk was in Jerusalem when it's destroyed a few years later by the marauding Babylonians. And it's highly likely, because we don't hear of Habakkuk afterwards, that he actually died in Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. Chapter 3 reveals that Habakkuk's attitude toward God had changed, even though the circumstances had not. Even though the circumstances got worse for Habakkuk, his attitude towards God had changed. What are we to do as we look around us and see those who profess faith slander the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or those who who claim to follow Christ, but who actually lead people toward the idolatry of self and declare that what God has said in his word is, is just not true. We see this all around us. We hear it all around us. Those who profess faith, proclaim the name of Jesus, are leading people away from Christ. What are we to do as we see the culture and our country travel headlong towards disaster as they turn the truth of God into a lie? As they call evil good and good evil. What are we to do? How long, O Lord? Do you not see? First and foremost, we must pray. Like Habakkuk. We must cry out to the Lord. Now, some of us, for sure, are more inclined to pray for justice. Lord, come and do something. Act, Lord, powerfully. Sweep through so that the people truly know that you are God. But we need to be careful. Because if we cry out for justice... If we want justice to be seen in our land, God's justice may well be severe. You know, when Habakkuk first heard what God said, he kind of said, well, look, okay, don't send the Babylonians. I'll live with the situation as it is now. You see, and when we cry out for justice, if God was to bring justice to our land, would we actually be ready to face it? Or actually would we say, well, you know, I know it's bad, but I can cope with what's going on now. You need to think about that. Not not to say that we shouldn't cry out for justice, for God to act, absolutely we should. But do you trust God? Would your faith survive such a test like Habakkuk's did? <coughs> we also pray that the gospel will break forth again into our land. There's nothing wrong in praying for a revival of true faith. We should be praying that 
that God would break out, not just necessary injustice, but to turn people's hearts around. Paul writes in Romans 1.16 that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Because in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we proclaim the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Isn't that what we want to see? The gospel being proclaimed. Oh, in one sense, we want to cry out, Justice, Lord. We want to see your justice. But we also must pray, Lord, send your gospel. Who is going to be God's witnesses across the world, across this land? Who is going to proclaim the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation for all who believe? What a difference it would make to this city to Grand Prairie, to Canada, if the gospel was truly proclaimed faithfully. But we must also warn, especially those who profess Christ, we must warn those. Hebrews warns people who, in a sense, were brought up in the church not to trample on the death of Christ, not to walk away. Severe warnings in Hebrews. To say, you need to be careful. You've heard the truth. You've tasted in a sense of the blessing of God as you've listened to the word of God proclaimed. You've received the promises of God, many of you, in baptism. Don't walk away. Don't trample on the Son of God. Likewise, we must warn the Apostle Paul on his missionary journey, his first missionary journey, cites Habakkuk 1.5 to the Jewish leaders who objected to the gospel message in Acts chapter 13. He said, look you scoffers, be astounded and for a day, a work. Sorry, let me read that again. Look you scoffers, be astounded, for I am doing a work in your day that you will not believe. Now Paul was actually uh, quoting from the Septuagint, the uh, translation into Greek of the Hebrew scriptures by Hebrew scholars between the time of Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist. So in that intertestament time, the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek. And that's what a lot of the apostles or writers of the New Testament used um, when they were citing scripture. And what these writers did, these translators did, that they expanded in a sense the purpose of the quotation beyond just Habakkuk, because obviously it had already come to pass. And it expanded them under the inspiration of the Lord to those who refuse to believe that the judgment of God is coming. That's what Paul was saying. Look around you. And that's what we need to warn people. Look around you. Oh, for sure. Just like in the days of Noah, everybody's going about just doing their own thing. Despite the warnings, we believe that actually for a hundred years, hundred years, Noah warned before the flood the judgment was coming. And they said, rain? What rain? Then the judgment came. Likewise, Jesus said, be like in the days of Noah. People were just going to be going about the business. Like in the days of Habakkuk, people were just going about their business, ignorant of what God was doing. And likewise, people were saying, Jesus, the judge? Are you crazy? God has got to laugh. Again, um, on social media this week, I saw one of those, uh, I mean, it's like going back to the early heretic days. You know, somebody saying, you know, who do you love? The God of the Old Testament or the God of the New? Of Marcion is at work in the 21st century. 
Why? Oh, because the Old Testament God was a God of judgment. Read Habakkuk. The New Testament God in Jesus is a loving God. What's the reality? Who is it that God has appointed to be the judge of the whole world? Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. For all who come to him in faith, repentance, he's saviour. But everyone who rejects the name of the Lord will face judgment at the hands of Jesus Christ. And we need to warn. We need to warn people. The judgment is coming. The, the end is coming. I know. We've seen those people, maybe heard them. Uh, certainly in, in England, when I was growing up, you used to see the people walking around London with the, the boards on saying, the end is nigh. But they weren't all wrong. The truth is, Jesus is coming again. He's coming again to take all of those who belong to him, who trust in him, to be with him forever. But he's coming again also to bring judgment on those who reject the message and the truth of the gospel. So we need to warn, we need to warn each and every person. We need to warn especially those who have heard the truth and are walking away from the truth. Heed the words because God is doing a work in our day that we will be astonished at. Judgment is coming. That's the message that Habakkuk had to understand. Judgment is coming. God is at work. But the righteous shall live by faith. Will your faith, will your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ stand firm in the days of terror? Will your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ stand firm as the days may get worse? Well, they may get better. But if they get worse, is you, will your faith stand firm? Are you truly looking to God? Are you looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith? Or we pray, we warn, but we must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to our Lord. He will do what he will do. The righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. We pray that we will be faithful, that we will hold on to the truth. Father, your warnings in Scripture are clear. And we know that there is coming a day, and that day is soon, when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. But we thank you that we have a powerful, a powerful message of the gospel, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And our prayer is that each and every one in this place who's heard your word this day will truly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we won't walk away. We won't turn our backs on Christ. Because you truly are doing a work in our day that we will be astounded at if we turn our backs on you. Father, we pray that truly we will live by faith. That we will live trusting in you. Whatever happens, Lord, we do pray that you would bring about a change, bring revival to our land. Whatever, however, Lord, you choose to act, we pray that we will be those who trust in you. Hold firm to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask for your blessing upon us in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.